1: Follow the global story from the BBC, wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and a love all things tech. And it's time for the tech news for Tuesday, November 30th, 2021. And yes, it's that time again. No, I don't mean the holidays. I mean, it's time for Jack Dorsey, Twitter co-founder, to step down as CEO of Twitter again. Dorsey co-founded Twitter all the way back in 2006 with Biz Stone, Evan Williams, and Noah Glass. He served as the CEO from 2006 to 2008, Then he stepped aside for fellow co-founder Evan Williams to take over. And instead, Dorsey assumed the role of chairman of the board of directors. Williams would then step down after two years as CEO. And then Dick Costolo, who was the former COO of the company, assumed the role of CEO. And when Costolo stepped down in 2015, Jack Dorsey returned as CEO. So like Grover Cleveland... Dorsey served two non-consecutive terms. Anyway, he has resigned and says it's time for Twitter to move away from its founders. And now the former CTO of Twitter, Parag Agrawal, has become the new CEO. For years, Dorsey has faced criticism because he also serves as the head of Square, that is, the the, uh, online payment processing company famous for producing the smartphone and tablet peripherals that create a point of sale for small businesses. Uh, Investors were concerned that his attention was too divided between these different businesses, and Twitter has stalled out when it comes to user growth. So it was on a, a steady path of growth up through 2014, but after that, the growth began to slow down and even level off. In fact. By the first quarter of 2019, Twitter announced it would no longer share its monthly active user account. They had three different months in a row in which the user number was on the decline rather than growth. And yeah, reporting on monthly users would make the company look stagnant. And it would probably worry investors and invite comparisons to other social networks like Facebook. So there have been investors... Calling for Dorsey's resignation for a while, they've wanted to see Twitter shift into a higher gear and get into growth mode again. So is that actually possible? I honestly don't know. I suppose anything is possible, but it would mean having to find a way to make Twitter relevant for younger users. Uh, Twitter skews older for social networks. Nearly 40% of its user base is between the ages of 25 and 35. The second largest demographic group is aged between 35 and 49. So like more than half of Twitter's users are over the age of 25. Anyway, at least some investors have expressed approval of Dorsey's resignation, but they've also said they were hoping to see someone from outside Twitter take control rather than promotion from inside. And of course, It was promoted from Insight, so we'll have to see what happens. Today, Twitter announced that it had updated its privacy and security policy to extend additional protection toward quote-unquote private media. Twitter already will take action against users who publish other people's private information without those people's consent, like, you know, a person's address or their phone number or a picture of their ID or, you know, any kind of other personal information, Now that protection also extends towards media of private individuals without the permission from those individuals. So if you snap a photo of that jerk face who lives across the street without said jerk faces permission, and then you share that photo to Twitter, you would technically be violating this policy. Now, to be clear, Twitter hasn't employed an army of reviewers or a ton of AI bots to scour all the tweets and look for media, and then seek out the people in that media to find out if they gave permission for that to be shared or not. This is instead a reactive policy. So if I go on Twitter and I see that that jerk face who lives across the street has posted a photo of me and I didn't give my permission, I can contact Twitter and I can say, hey, I didn't say jerk face could do that. And Twitter will then remove the tweet. Maybe. Because the policy actually does not apply to, quote, media featuring public figures or individuals when media and accompanying tweet text are shared in the public interest or add value to public discourse, end quote. Now, I don't think I actually quite qualify as a public figure. I'm not nearly notable enough to qualify for that status. But it does mean that if the jerk face who lives across the street from me is, I don't know, Justin Bieber and, and I snap a photo of him and I share it, you know, you could argue that since Bieber is a public figure, that's still fair game. You know, the price of fame. And just because I'm a bad singer and belt baby, baby, baby while I'm walking my dog, you know, and then I get the restraining order. What a jerk face. Once upon a time, there was no Alphabet Company, and Google was just Google, And in this magical time, Google had an official motto, and that motto was don't be evil. And I think that's a pretty good motto to have, uh, particularly when your business depends so heavily upon knowing everything you could possibly know about people who use your search engine. Because as I and lots of other people have said many, many times, Google's business is not search. It's advertising. And pairing advertising with knowledge about the customer makes advertisements way more effective. That means they're more valuable, and that means Google can make way more money from selling them. And being the dominant player in the search engine world means Google has no shortage of revenue generators out there. That is, people using Google search. Anyway, don't be evil. It's a good motto. Well, three former Google employees have brought a lawsuit against the company for breach of contract. The employees, all three of whom were fired on the same day, say that Google failed to live up to its own code of conduct as spelled out in employee agreements. See, in 2015, when Google formed Alphabet as a parent company, it also dropped the don't be evil motto. You know, that was strange, wasn't it? Uh, But that phrase still exists in the employee agreements, which says in part, quote, Remember, don't be evil, and if you see something that you think isn't right, speak up, end quote. Well, these three employees, Sophie Waldman, Paul Duke, and Rebecca Rivers, say they were fired after they spoke out against Google, the company, while uh, it was signing a contract with the Customs and Border Protection in the United States in order to provide cloud computing services to that institution. Now, this was during Trump's presidency, at the height of xenophobic propaganda that painted immigrants, legal and non-legal alike, with a fearful and racist brush. Not to mention the department was separating and caging families at the time. The three employees were all fired on November 25th, 2019. Google's explanation was that the employees were leaking confidential information and were nosing around internal Google systems that was outside their scope of work. The former employees, they they deny this. And they also state that they were fired after they circulated a petition among other Google employees asking them to show their disapproval for this cloud services contract. I'll keep an eye on this lawsuit as it moves through the court system to see how it all pans out. Though, if it does go beyond a settlement I'll be really surprised. Last week, various news outlets reported that an internal survey at Facebook revealed that a significant number of Facebook staff are losing confidence in the company's leadership, with fewer than half of respondents indicating that they intend to stay with the company. That being said, I would argue the survey is really more of a way to send a message to upper management and executive management. It's not necessarily an indicator that we're going to see like more than half of Facebook employees just turn in their two weeks notice anytime soon. I don't expect that to happen. The same survey indicated that most employees like their direct managers. So they like the people who are directly over them. That seems to say that it really is an issue with the executive management level, as the source for employee concerns. This isn't that big of a surprise, considering how Facebook has been in the center of some really ugly stories over the last several years in general, and the last few months in particular. Positive responses indicating confidence in leadership were down to 49%, so more than half of those surveyed indicated a lack of confidence in leadership. Um, that's not great. And I, I guess I should say that, you know, we're really talking about the company Meta, not Facebook, but old habits are hard to break. I will frequently refer to Facebook, the company, um, you know, as Facebook as opposed to Meta. Anyway, as more outlets cover this story this week, including, you know, tech stuff, I imagine that executives at Facebook are paying a little bit more attention to that survey. Now, I don't know that they actually want to change anything at the company. I mean, They probably want to change how they word the questions in the survey so that they get better responses. Uh, It might be a little cynical. Speaking of Facebook slash Meta, the company in May of 2020 acquired animated GIF depository Giphy for a cool $315 million, and that appeared to be that. That is, until a UK antitrust regulation organization stepped in, that says that Meta will have to now sell off Giphy after all. They will have to get rid of it. The regulators say that Meta buying up Giphy gives Facebook or rather, you know, Meta slash Facebook an advantage over other social media platforms that also use Giphy like TikTok and stuff like that, and that it would simultaneously remove a potential Facebook competitor from the market. Uh, This would be in the ad space. So essentially what they're saying is that Giphy and Facebook could potentially court the same advertisers. But if Facebook buys Giphy like it did, then that means there's a reduction of choice for those advertisers. They can't choose to go with Facebook or Giphy because Facebook gobbled up Giphy, thus a loss in competition. It's interesting that a UK-based regulatory body could enforce an acquisition reversal on two US-based companies, but in fact, it does have that authority. The regulators have jurisdiction over acquisitions that represent at least a 25% control of a market within the UK. So unless Facebook decides to not operate in the UK, it does fall into this category. The regulators actually say that Meta and Giphy together would control a whopping 80 to 90% of the animated GIF market in the UK. That puts it well over the metric needed for this regulation body to step in. So it looks like the tide is really beginning to turn against big tech in a meaningful way. Meta representatives, unsurprisingly, released a statement saying they disagree with this decision, which I mean, of course they do, and that they are considering all options, including appealing this decision. They also said that the regulators were sending a message to entrepreneurs that, quote, do not build new companies because you will not be able to sell them, end quote. Personally, I actually think that's okay. I mean, I get the business plan for like 95% of all startups isn't to create a sustainable business. That's not the plan for most of them. No, the plan is to become attractive enough for some other bigger company to come along and acquire you. For oodles of cash and you cash out, but I'm not sure that's actually a very healthy approach to business in the long run. So I realize this might mean we might see fewer unicorns, but based on how gross a lot of unicorns turn out to be, I'm personally fine with that. Okay, we have some more news stories to cover, but before we get to that, let's take a quick break. Working remotely.
2: We're back.
0: Rolling Stone magazine reports that an FBI document has revealed that the FBI can easily access a person's WhatsApp or Apple iMessage history as long as the or activity, I should say, as long as the Bureau first secures an appropriate subpoena or warrant. Uh, That is a little bit of a shocking revelation because both services tout the fact that their communications are are fully encrypted end to end. So the idea here is that only the people in that conversation should be able to read the messages. Any other party, including Meta, in the case of WhatsApp, or Apple, in the case of iMessage, would not be able to read those messages. That's the whole point, right? So unless you get hold of one of the communicator's devices, it should be impossible, or at the very least, incredibly difficult to see what messages are being sent back and forth. But the FBI document calls these two services both, quote, the most popular encrypted messaging apps, end quote, while also simultaneously being, quote, the most permissive, end quote. So does that mean the FBI is magically able to unlock the encryption? Well, it turns out the answer to that is no. But what the FBI can do is pretty easily monitor activity to see stuff like who is communicating with whom, at what time, under what circumstances, in what locations. So in other words, this document really lays out how the FBI can collect and track metadata about the people who are communicating with each other. Sure, the content of the messages remains unknown, but with other dots that are out there, the FBI can start to build a case against people. For example, let's say that the FBI looks and sees that you've had some communication with someone they've labeled as a person of interest for something like they're th- this person has been targeted for an investigation and they see that that person has been in contact with you through one of these apps They could also see if you have any other people of interest listed in your contacts. So in other words, they could say, all right, well, we know that you have been in contact with this person that we're targeting. Let's see if you're also talking with anyone else who's on our lists. Um, Or they can also see if the person you're talking with has any other people of interest in their own contacts. And they can start building out networks of contacts in this way. And you can probably imagine at least a few cases in which This could become a really troubling issue. For example, let's say that you are an investigative journalist and you rely upon contacts who are embedded in various sensitive organizations like government offices, maybe the FBI itself. Well, the FBI could snoop on your communications and even without seeing what it is you're sending, could at least see to whom you are sending information that could lead to a whistleblower being exposed. The Rolling Stone received the FBI document from an organization called Property of the People, which filed a Freedom of Information Act request, and it's all aimed to publicize this practice and make people aware of how even encrypted messaging services may be less safe than you might think, particularly if they are pretty willing to work with law enforcement on these kinds of requests for metadata. And now here's an update to the Amazon union issue in Bessemer, Alabama. So in case you don't remember that story, workers at an Amazon warehouse in Alabama held a vote on whether or not they should unionize this past April. That vote ultimately ended up being against unionization. But organizers accused Amazon of engaging in illegal misconduct leading up to the vote And there were allegations of intimidating workers and spreading misinformation about unions. Uh, The National Labor Relations Board has now ruled that the workers can hold a new union election. Amazon representatives have expressed disappointment in the ruling. Allegedly, the company went to all this trouble to discourage voting and make it more difficult and even installing an illegal drop box and more. It really does seem to be a a real kick in the teeth for all that hard work to just go to waste. And again, I say allegedly because, you know, I don't want to get in trouble here. Also, it's worth noting that Amazon has a very high turnover rate with its employees. Uh, Many Amazon employees don't stay with the company for a very long time because the work is pretty brutal, at least in the warehouses and fulfillment centers. As such, it can be difficult to organize people because the folks you're talking to today might not be the same folks that you're calling in to vote next week. That's being, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but you get my my meaning, right? Like, it's hard to get any kind of movement going when the population is in such flux. Here's a different follow-up. I have talked a few times about state-sponsored malware on iOS devices, you know, turning things like iPhones into surveillance machines. Uh, Notably, I've talked about the malware from the Israeli-backed NSO group. Now Apple says that the company will send notifications to users who own iOS devices that have been compromised by such state-backed malware. Apple will send notifications via iMessage to affected users, They'll also send out emails, there'll be other notifications as well. It's expected that not very many people will actually receive these notifications because state-sponsored attacks are usually really targeted and precise. You know, they have specific people in mind that they go after rather than casting a wide net. Like a lot of hackers, they make malware and the whole intent is to infect as many devices as you possibly can. So you're taking a broad approach. That's not the case with state-sponsored attacks. They're usually looking at specific people and saying, we want to compromise their device so we can find out what they're up to. So in other words, unless you are a diplomat or an international journalist or an activist or, you know, politician, maybe, like the head of some big company, you probably haven't been targeted and you won't get one of these messages. Probably. But, you know, just just keep a lookout on those iOS notifications. An IT company called Landsweeper surveyed Windows-based devices that were running on various networks. You know, you can get a lot of data about what machines are actually using your network that doesn't involve anything about the people behind the machines. Like, you can see what sort of operating system was being used by that machine that accessed your network. So they did this in an effort to kind of see how many machines out there, how many PCs, are running the most recent version of Windows which is of course Windows 11 it launched last month now according to the firm a measly 0.21% that's 0.21% of PC users are running the newest operating system a month after its release That is shockingly low. That's even fewer folks running the Windows 11 than are currently running Windows XP. Windows XP hasn't been supported by Microsoft since like 2012, I think, maybe even earlier than that. And yet it still commands more than three and a half percent of all PCs on these same networks. That is really shocking. Uh, the survey should really be a matter of concern, not just to Microsoft, which you know clearly the company has a vested interest in seeing their product get widespread adoption, but it also should be a big concern to i t professionals in general on various networks. A significant number of machines are running on end of life versions of Windows, that is versions of Windows that Microsoft no longer supports, like XP and Windows 7. Those are no longer getting support updates. That means that for any of the exploits that have popped up since Microsoft ended support and any future exploits, there's no real chance of rescue there, right? These machines are going to be vulnerable to that kind of exploitation. So this is why it's a good idea to try and stay up to date with operating systems whenever possible. That being said, I do have a couple of caveats to this. Generally, I suggest that you balance out the need to be up to date with the latest versions of operating systems with waiting a short while once updates come out to make sure that they don't break stuff, because sometimes an update will break things. And depending on what it breaks, it might be something important, right? However, there's a caveat to that caveat, which is that in the case of urgent security updates. Let's say that there was a uh, a critical vulnerability found within an operating system and a patch is sent out. I think then it is a good idea to update as soon as you have access to that, that patch because vulnerabilities are serious things. Like you do not want your device to get compromised. However, uh, Windows 11, it has not had widespread adoption, even though like, a lot of tech people love to jump on the latest thing. Windows does not appear to be one of those things. Uh, One reason for that might be that Windows 11 also has some relatively hefty resource requirements. So your computer needs to be, you know, a fairly recent machine to run Windows 11 effectively. So for some folks, it's just not practical to upgrade to the latest OS because, you know, you don't want your operating system eating up all your computer's resources, leaving nothing for anything else. Um, That was my big issue with Windows when it first came out way, way back when. I was one of those grouchy kids who was, you know, grousing about the fact that we were moving away from MS-DOS to Windows. Because the Windows operating system required so much uh, com- computational resources, which was granted a fraction of what you would have in a, in a even a, even a modest smartphone would be better than the computer I had back then but because the operating system was requiring so much processing power, it limited what you could actually run on the machine. And I thought that was ridiculous at the time. I still think it's ridiculous now, but it's just the way of the world. <laughs> so anyway, that's one reason why a lot of people haven't upgraded to Windows 11 is just that it's not ideal for whatever machine they're running on. Meanwhile, we're still in a supply chain nightmare and a semiconductor chip shortage on top of that that's you know part of the supply chain issue. And getting a new computer isn't necessarily easy, nor is it cheap because, you know, we've seen those prices start to go up because of these these supply chain issues. So there are a lot of legit reasons why people might be holding back on adopting Windows 11. It's really seen as the kind of operating system that is coming out with new machines. And there's just not as big of a market for new machines right now because of all those reasons. So this could be a problem that sticks around a little bit and has little to nothing to do with the actual quality of the operating system itself. It's a very frustrating problem to have, I'm sure, for Microsoft. Here in the US, lawmakers are introducing, or rather reintroducing legislation that aims to make it illegal for people to use automated bots to buy up retail goods. At issue is the fact that when certain products are on the verge of exploding in popularity or demand, some folks who have a lot of money We'll use bots to buy up all the available products, and then they might sell them off at marked up prices on like auction sites. I always think this might be a thing that happens with treasure truck. Maybe it's just me. Uh, I I sometimes get notifications from Amazon about treasure truck stuff, and occasionally I'll check it out of curiosity. And almost always when I check it, it turns out that whatever the thing was, I mean, even if I I click on it as soon as I get that text message, it says it's out of Uh, stock, which either means there's an incredibly small amount of stock that's being on offer or maybe I'm getting the message too late or perhaps people are using bots to buy those things up before other folks get a chance to. But you really see this with stuff like video game consoles. This is one of the many reasons why it's hard to get hold of something like a PlayStation 5 right now. Uh, it also is a big issue with graphics cards, even though we've seen Bitcoin miners move away from graphics cards because even the most powerful graphics cards now don't have the oomph needed to do Bitcoin mining, even though that has stopped being as big of an issue, we still see graphics cards getting bought up faster than people can even you know, keep them in stock. So this proposed legislation has the cute nickname of Stopping Grinch Bots Act. Uh, For those who are unaware, the Grinch is a character from a Dr. Seuss book, and he famously invades a small town to steal all the Christmas presents on Christmas Eve. Anyway, lawmakers previously introduced this proposal back in 2019, but it didn't go very far. It kind of stalled out. But that was before the pandemic and before all the supply chain issues that I've been alluding to throughout this episode. And perhaps this year, it can get a little more traction as Americans struggle to engage in the rampant consumerism that marks the holiday season. All right. Speaking of rampant consumerism, it's time for us to take a quick break for some ads. We will be back with a few more stories after this. Working remotely,
2: We're back. Okay, just a
0: few more stories to round out this episode. First of all, the car manufacturing company Nissan has announced plans to budget nearly $17.6 billion toward electrifying its fleet of vehicles, shifting more resources toward the design and production of electric vehicles in anticipation of more regions throughout the world passing EV mandates. You know, there are a lot of places like the UK that have said that uh, by 2035, for example, no more internal combustion engine cars will be available for sale. No more new ones, that is. You can still sell older vehicles, but all new vehicles will have to be electric vehicles from that point forward. Uh, Nissan, interestingly, did not go so far as to make a commitment toward ending production of internal combustion engine vehicles. And in fact, uh, there are a couple of Japanese companies, manufacturing car manufacturing companies, that have also not gone to that step. Um, perhaps hoping that that either the adoption of electric vehicles will be delayed or that, you know, it, maybe it's just too expensive to shift operations to EV production, but whatever the reason we're seeing a couple of companies kind of drag their feet on this. And Nissan appears to be one of them. Uh, The company said that it will be introducing 23 new electric vehicles by 2030, and more than half of those will be fully electric. Uh, The rest will be hybrids of some sort. Right now, the company plans for electric vehicles to make up to 40% of its sales by 2040 here in the United States. Uh, That's assuming, of course, that we don't see more states passing these similar kinds of mandates or even a federal mandate mandate that requires uh, all new vehicles to be electric vehicles. In that case, that entire strategy will have to be rethought. Meanwhile, some BMW models are going to have fewer options than what would typically be offered because of that ding dang darn semiconductor chip shortage I was talking about. It has forced BMW to nix the touchscreen that would typically be found in models like the BMW X5 or the X6 series or X7 or Z4 series, uh, as well as others. I think the BMW 3 and 4 both have models that have typically the touchscreen as an option in the vehicle. Now they're not going to have that. Instead, they will have controls in the center console, kind of like older BMW models. Uh, They used a BMW system called iDrive Controller, and uh, it was all built in the center console. It looks like these new cars are also going to go back to that older design. BMW has recognized that this is a step back and has announced that it will offer a $500 credit on models that should have had a touchscreen, but will no longer have them. This has affected other stuff besides just an interface in the car. Uh, There was a backup assistant feature that was part of the parking assistant package that the parking assistant package is still going to be available in these vehicles, but the backup assistant feature is no longer an option Uh, that would allow you to use a a system that would automatically reverse the process of parking when you were backing out so that you could get out of things like super tight spaces or whatever. Now you're just going to have to do it on your own again. And in South Korea, the National Police Agency is advocating for a new process that would require elderly drivers to apply for conditional driver's licenses before being allowed to drive. This process would include a joyride in a virtual vehicle. So the idea is to use VR to test the elderly to make certain they can still operate a vehicle safely under normal conditions, both day driving and night driving. From what I understand The uh, the people who will apply for this conditional license will have to wear a VR headset and they will go through a scenario, a series of scenarios, three, both in in day and and in night that will uh, introduce things like an incident that happens that you have to respond to common stuff like let's say someone cuts you off on the highway, Uh, you would have to be able to respond safely and quickly to be able to avoid any kind of collision. That's the kind of thing that they're going to replicate uh, or simulate with this VR system. So South Korea has an aging population and police are concerned about a rise in accident rates in, in traffic accident rates that involve senior drivers. So this is an effort to try and identify potential issues before they become hazardous or deadly. Uh, The plan is to have this new process in place by 2025. And finally, I have an update on the James Webb Space Telescope story. So I mentioned last week that there was an accident that caused a vibration to move through the telescope. The telescope itself is a satellite telescope. It's an incredibly sensitive piece of machinery. Very delicate. It's got lots of delicate moving parts Uh, For example, it has this massive array of mirrors that will have to unfold in space that will end up reflecting electromagnetic waves toward the detector on the telescope. So if those actuators are damaged, well, then the telescope just won't work because you have to have those mirrors in the proper configuration in order for it to focus very weak signals so that we can study them. Well, The little incident meant that, at the very least, the telescope's launch would have to be delayed from December 18th to, quote, no earlier than December 22nd, end quote. Well, now NASA has conducted a thorough investigation. Engineers were looking for any signs of damage in the telescope. They reported that they found none. So NASA has now authorized the launch for December 22nd, 7.20 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. So it seems like the very, very long journey to launch is coming to an end after more than a decade. I mean, I've got a tattoo that is related to the James Webb Space Telescope, and I got that tattoo a few years ago. Soon after this happens, we'll have another long journey ahead of us, but this time it will be one marked in, you know miles rather than in years. We're talking about the journey into space itself. The telescope will go into orbit and it will search for answers about how the earliest stars and galaxies took shape in our universe right at the very beginning of time, as well as it will help study exoplanets in our ongoing quest to find out if there are other planets in our neighborhood that could potentially harbor life on them. And by neighborhood, I mean like our galaxy, not our solar system. But that would be really cool, whether to, you know, possibly study and search for actual life or just, you know, kind of make plans for far off distant future travels that would take generations to complete. Anyway, I think it's pretty exciting. I really hope that the rest of the process goes without any more incidents. This telescope has been through a lot. And the only incident I wouldn't mind having more discussion about is the name of the telescope. But apart from that, like there have been so many delays associated with this particular device that uh, it would be really nice if we could get it up into space and have it operational, you know, within a few months. That's my hope. We'll have to see if it happens. And that is it for the news for Tuesday, November 30th, 2021. Just a heads up, we will not have a news episode on Thursday. We have another episode of Smart Talks with IBM publishing on Thursday. Uh, I think that might be the final one that publishes in tech stuff. And after that, it'll it'll just be me again. You know, just us. Hope you like that. If you have any suggestions for topics I should cover on future episodes of Tech Stuff, whether it's a technology, a company, a trend in tech, anything tech related like that, shoot me a message on Twitter. Let me know. The handle for the show is Tech Stuff HSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon.